Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. It is considered to be a heinous crime in Scientology to question or doubt anything that L. Ron Hubbard says. So, you know, from that perspective, that's pretty godlike. You know, the only the only real infallible, you know, entities are gods, not men. Um, so that is how Scientologists see L. Ron Hubbard. He is the person who discovered the only path to achieve full spiritual happiness and enlightenment. Great to be back with you here for another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thank you to our major sponsor, Neon Treehouse, who are doing an amazing job at managing all our social media work. This week, I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with Mike Rinder. Mike is a former member of the Global Cult Scientology from when he joined at age five years old in the early 1960s until his exit in 2007. Mike rose up the ranks in Scientology and was one of the highest ranking members of the organization until his departure. Mike spent time working alongside current leader David Miscavige and former leader and founder of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard. Since leaving Scientology, Mike has built himself a meaningful life in Florida as an author, media personality, and board director at the Aftermath Foundation, where he helps others in need to find a way out of Scientology and to build new lives for themselves on the outside. You'll be able to tell from Mike's accent that he is in fact Australian and hails from lovely Adelaide. Some of Mike's fine media appearances include featuring alongside Leah Remini in Scientology and the Aftermath, and the illuminating 2015 documentary Going Clear, Scientology and the Prison of Belief. Mike has just released his much-anticipated book, A Billion Years, My Escape from a Life in the Highest Ranks of Scientology. And you can find this via the link in our show notes. It's already a number one bestseller on Amazon. Mike also has a great blog that you can find in the show notes with more information, Scientology news, and further purchase options. There are some amazing lessons we can learn about the light and dark sides of humanity from Mike, as well as our unlimited human potential we all possess to change our lives for the better. On another note, Mike is just a lovely guy, and my lovely wife Louise and I really enjoyed chatting with him. You'll notice that with her expert knowledge of Scientology and great rapport building skills, that her questions land far better than mine, and uh, some of my attempts are rather sloppy indeed, but she, she does a good job in making us both look good representing humans of purpose. Just a reminder that if you prefer to experience Humans of Purpose without all the ads a few days before everyone else on a dedicated members-only stream with access to full transcripts and audio notes on each episode, then that's easy to do. Just become a Humans of Purpose gold member. I'll even be able to connect you directly with guests that you might want to talk to yourself. More on this in the show notes. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mike as much as I did. So what a pleasure. I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Mike Rinder today. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Hi, guys. Lovely to be joining you all the way over there in good old Melbourne. It's uh, just wonderful. We're on holidays in the Gold Coast, and you were so kind to respond to Oh, you're to in my... the Gold Coast? <laughs> we're in the Gold Coast. We're actually experiencing some good weather, which is just a lovely change. But I thought, I thought, given your accent and your book release, I'd take a pun and drop you an email, and maybe you'd be kind enough to indulge a fellow Australian in a, a conversation. So thanks so much for making it happen for us. Of course. Of course. Um, I'm going to let my wonderful co-host and uh, cult expert Louise kick off the questioning today. Go ahead, Lulu. I'd like to preface that with amateur cult expert. (laughs) (laughs) And also the How do do you be an amateur expert? Uh, Just it's a a hobby rather than a career. (laughs) It's because she's an expert in cardiology, Mike. That's her main profession. And cults is just like a, it's a non-revenue generating sideline at this stage. (laughs) You are way too young to be a cardiologist. I look younger than I am, Mike, but that's very kind. 
Get to the hard okay. stuff. Okay. All right. We'll get underway. I, I guess I just wanted to preface this by saying this is excellent timing because you've just launched your new book, A Billion Years, and we'd love to hear about that um, shortly. But we're really excited and, and we're very keen once it's available in Australia, we're very keen to um, take a look. Um, but what It is like available know, in Australia, Lou. Oh, good. You can excellent. buy it now. Well, I tried to purchase it on um, audiobooks, but I wasn't able to no, get it just yet. You can't yet. buy the damn audiobook because <laughs> you can, <coughs> excuse me, you can buy the book, but you can't buy the audiobook because of these weird, bizarre rules that Audible has about licensing. It, it's very complicated, and I never could understand what their problem was. I gave the rights to the foreign publishers. It's all like they had the f- audio files. They had everything. And audio Audible was just like, oh, we don't do that. We're not going to do it because you have a different publisher in the United States. And so they're going to come after us for using their intellectual property. And I'm like, no, here's the contract. Anyway. Supposedly, in the next two weeks, the Audible is version is going to be available. So, excellent. Fingers crossed. Yeah, great. Because as a you know new parent, um, I'm not I'm not very time efficient at the moment. So I'm finding audiobooks is the best way to sort of get get my fix. I get it. We may kick Congratulations. off now. Thank you. Congratulations, so much. by the way. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Um, our audience don't want to hear about my life, but they really want to hear about <laughs> all about you and hear um, in particular with respect to your history in Scientology. We're, we're really interested to know how you got into Scientology, how you got out, and a little bit about um, what was the trigger or um, impetus that told you things aren't right and I, I need to get out of here. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's the that's the entire scope of my book. <laughs> I, I <laughs> good one, Lou. I, I got in um, as a child because my parents. I we grew up in Adelaide, and my parents, our next door neighbor, in 1959, drove to Melbourne to see L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, deliver some lectures in Melbourne. And he came back and he persuaded my parents that this was the next great thing, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, they got sucked in and became Scientologists in, you know, the late 50s, early 60s, uh, when I was like five. And so I was really raised as a Scientologist in a... um in in a world at that time in Australia, um, I'm not sure how much you know, but there was an inquiry that was held in Melbourne, in the in the state of Victoria, into the fraudulent practices of Scientology, and the outcome of that was basically to ban Scientology, at least in Victoria, and then other states sort of followed followed similar patterns, um, and it became somewhat unsafe even to be practicing Scientology. So we were sort of in an underground movement, if you want to call it that. I mean, it was a few families in Adelaide, a bunch of other kids, and we all kind of grew up with this, mm, you know, Hubbard says that, Scientology is attacked and persecuted because it's going to free people from the slavery that they have been um, tricked into following as a part of the, you know, establishment and, and um, old religions and psychiatry and all these other boogeymen that exist out there. And my, my young, or formative years sort of proved that to be true. And when I graduated high school um, and turned right shortly thereafter, turned 18, I joined what is called the C organization. And that was, or is still today, like the elite 
inner core at the top of the hierarchy of Scientology. At the time, it was those people who worked directly for and with L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology. And he had taken himself off onto a a boat called the Apollo. It was like a yacht, like a large yacht, you know, 3,000 tons. It, it held 200 people. It was pretty big, but not by ocean cruise ship standards. Um, and I went to work with him when I was 18 in on this ship, the Apollo, which at the time was in Portugal. And from there, as a sort of born and raised uh, Scientology kid, I kind of rose up the ranks of Scientology and ultimately became a member of the board of directors of the Church of Scientology International, the head of the Office of Special Affairs, which is the sort of dirty tricks and legal and PR department of Scientology. Um, for, for a couple of decades, I was really the international spokesperson for Scientology. I did all of the major media appearances that happened. Um, and Hubbard died in 1986 and his successor is a guy called David Miscavige. And David Miscavige, um, seized his, seized control of Scientology in the wake of Hubbard's death and is uh, a madman. He, he's a, he, he too was raised a Scientologist. I actually knew him when he was young and my parents were friends with his parents and he, um, kind of epitomizes everything that's bad about what you learn in Scientology about being uh, ruthless. And, but in addition to that, I think that the power that he has, has gone to his head and is very corrosive and has turned him into a monster. And his, his monstrous behavior is what finally gave me the impetus to escape from the Sea Org. And I say escape, not leave, because it really is something you have to escape from. It's not a, it's not a matter of just kind of saying, Oh, thank you very much. Um, I think I'm going to move on to a new phase of my life here. This is a, a very, uh, strictly regimented, controlled uh, environment that people at the top of the sea organization exist in, um, at facilities that uh patrolled by 24-hour-a-day guards and barbed wire fences and lights and motion sensors. And it's a, it's a fairly mm, intimidating uh presence that is maintained to discourage people from departing. Um, I departed in 2007 when I was 52 and I had two children and a wife who were in the C organization. They were actually born into the C organization. Um, they, disconnected from me and subsequently have been sort of the vocal, the mouthpieces for Scientology seeking to discredit me. Um, I know I just rambled on for like 20 minutes, Lou, no, in yeah. answer to one question, <laughs> but that's sort of for anybody that doesn't know anything about me or hasn't read my book or doesn't sort of know much, that's kind of it in a nutshell. That's perfect. So now no one needs to read the book. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> next question. I mean, you know, what your, your journey from worshipping or uh, seeing Ron Hubbard, uh, Lafayette Ron Hubbard as sort of this God King, and then you grow up worshipping him, then you go to work with him um, as a Sea Org and board of director uh, in the Scientology organization, high up in the ranks. 
what did you feel like? What were your impressions of um, LRH at that time? Did you sort of see him as a god king or somebody who was who above human, or how did you interpret um, him? And what was it like to work with him also? And how closely did you work with him? Okay, wow, these questions you like you give the like these three part. Okay, <laughs> okay. So first, first question: How closely did I work with him? Well, at some point, I worked with him you know, all day long and all night long, meaning I was sitting outside of his bedroom waiting to be summoned uh, to, you know, whatever he needed in the middle of the night and all throughout the day. Um, I didn't spend years doing that. I spent a portion of time, but I worked for him and had like a lot of correspondence with him and, direction and this is you need to do this now and here reporting back he um okay let me tell you how i felt about him when i was in the sea org and when i was a scientologist he goes to great pains to say i'm just a man i'm not a god but it's sort of open to to um, interpretation because he also says basically everything I say is true and may not be questioned, and it is considered to be a heinous crime in Scientology to question or doubt anything that L. Ron Hubbard says. So you know, from that perspective, that's pretty godlike. You know, the only the only real infallible you know entities uh gods not men um so that is how scientologists see l ron hubbard he is the person who discovered the only path to achieve full spiritual happiness and enlightenment and the only person to understand what really man is composed of and his mind and his spirit and et cetera, et cetera. And Hubbard in, you know, he, he made a lot of very public statements in some less public utterances. He claimed, well, the reason that I am the only one who has discovered all this uh, incredible answers to life is because I'm not from this planet. I came, I was sent here to save Earth. And, you know, that's pretty out there. So that's not something that is publicly acknowledged, but it's certainly something that Hubbard said. Okay. He was a, a very much larger than life character. I mean, there is no doubt that. He had a, a sort of charisma, you know, like that. And charisma doesn't necessarily mean a good charisma. It's just that people knew when he walked into a room, he had a big presence. He um, could be very, very sort of garrulous and laughing and slapping your back. And what a wonderful, uh, you know, happy-go-lucky kind of guy, and then he could flip and be uh, extremely angry and, you know, blowing his top and beating his fist on the table. Um, but the truth of the matter is, if I now had to summarize um, L. Ron Hubbard, it would be one word, storyteller, or probably less polite, bullshitter. He told stories about everything. And what really, really opened my eyes to this was after I left, I read this wonderful book by a British journalist, Russell Miller, called Barefaced Messiah. And Russell Miller went back and sort of did an unauthorized biography of L. Ron Hubbard by reaching out and contacting the people he went to school with, his aunts, his like all sorts of people all over the world and piece together the real story of L. Ron Hubbard. And Hubbard has lied about virtually everything in his life. And 
that's not a that's not just a a you know shotgun broad statement with no basis. I mean, he lied about the fact that he was uh, you know riding horses at the age of two and reading and writing at the age of three and uh, you know was the uh, blood brother of the Blackfeet Indians when he was five and like. Virtually everything that he has stated about his history is either a, a, just a gross embellishment exaggeration or just complete made-up bullshit. And he has positioned himself through these stories about his life as having this incredible experience. I mean, he talks about how as a child he went to China and he studied under the magicians in the, in the far Western Hills of China and blah, blah, blah. None of that's true. I mean, his <laughs> diaries, uh, you know, he did go to China because his father was in the Navy and stationed in Guam. And one of the ships that he sailed to see his father on stopped in somewhere in China and Hubbard wrote a diary and said the thing, uh, the real problem with China is there's too many chinks. This is actually what he, like, this is really what, what he had to say about things and his one day visit to Beijing or wherever it was. And yet he tells these stories about, oh, how he learned great wisdom from these teachers in China and blah, 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 blah. And this is just one tiny example, and there are many, many, many of them, um, including the, the fact that he claimed to have developed Dianetics based on the fact that he was blinded and crippled at the end of World War II due to injuries that he had suffered in the Navy. Well, that too was bullshit. He had conjunctivitis and an ulcer. Um, <laughs> that could be quite he, crippling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He, he claimed that he was crippled and blinded and that he had cured himself through the techniques of Dianetics. Oh, my God. And this is the basis. Dianetics is what's considered to be the, like the fundamental text of Dianetics and Scientology. Um, and so, you know, <clears throat> the, the thing about Hubbard is he made a living telling stories as a fiction writer, and then he made a more lucrative living telling stories as the founder of Dianetics and Scientology. That's really well said, Mike. And, uh, I just, I can't help but noticing the sort of parallels between, um, something I was hearing the other day about uh, North Korean mythology and um, the, these tales you hear about Kim Jong-un and uh, Kim Jong-il playing their first round of golf and hitting nine holes in one uh, <laughs> for the first time they play, et cetera. Sort of eerily familiar, uh, the feats that these um, these self-made stories can, can sort of confer. But I, I wanted to right. ask you, what is the contrast? If you're saying that Elrond Hubbard, like he's kind of very charismatic He's maybe a little bit crazy, but his charisma is a core part of his leadership. How is that different to David Miscavige's style of leadership? Because when you look at Miscavige, I mean, I must say his intensity and the way he speaks is just terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, David Miscavige is a sociopath and he can be charming. He, he, you know, if he is out glad handing at the, you know, premiere of Tom Cruise's latest movie and hanging out with Steven Spielberg or whatever, he can be very charming and put on the airs of, I'm a, a very gracious, um, interested listener to what you have to say and blah, blah, blah. The truth is that he is, I actually believe to some, that to some extent Hubbard convinced himself that he was helping people and that gave him some satisfaction. And, you know, it wasn't 
it, it wasn't like that was really what was most important to him, but it certainly was something that he took pleasure in um, being told by people that, you know, you have really helped me with this or you, you know, Dianetics, you know, I threw away my glasses or whatever stories people come up with. Miscavige seems to derive pleasure out of wielding power. And my definition of wielding power is that you can get people to do things that are against their best interests or against their inherent nature, that that is ultimate power. When you are capable and have the ability of, of convincing someone, and you may not, it may not even require a lot of convincing, it may just be saying, this is what you should do, and they will do it, and it's really, really bad for them, that is power. And that is what Miscavige relishes in. And I go into a lot of detail in the book about how he went about getting into the position that he is in and how he has maintained that position. And I got to tell you, I've been reading a book recently called The Dark Persuaders, which is a really interesting book about the history of brainwashing. And the parallels between David Miscavige and, and Joe Stalin are remarkable in their style. It is not that Miscavige walks up and shoots people in the head or, or sends them to, you know, die in a Siberian gulag, but the style of running, um, an organization through fear and running it through the, the uncertainty that everybody around him and beneath him, uh, has that, that today could be their last day or they could be a hero today or they could be, you know, shoveling shit in Louisiana today. It's like the world of surrounding Miscavige is completely unpredictable and it fosters this environment where people try and do things to stay in good favor. And those things are not necessarily um, good. So he's a, he's a, he's a lunatic and, you know, there's no two ways about it. Um, and Hubbard too was a lunatic, but just kind of a nicer lunatic. <laughs> I don't know how to say. Yeah. More charming. And, and and like somehow seemed to derive some pleasure out of doing things that he thought helped people. You're really interesting, Mike. And it seems that if you look at, um, and I'm maybe hesitant to use the word cult, but I guess I will. That's um, with various cults. I'm not. Um, you see that <laughs> the intensity ramps up over time, and often the leaders become more and more um, punitive. I guess, and I, it seems like that's also been. David Miscavige's style, but I'm really interested to understand how you think um, the contemporary life and, and particularly the internet has impacted on people's uh, interest or uh, curiosity about uh, joining, so for potentially new members or affected the recruitment of Scientology and also the existing members. So are people completely censored in the community, not using smartphones, not accessing the internet? What's happening at the moment? Okay, that's a, that's a great point, Lou. You know, information is poison to cults. It is the thing that, that ultimately brings about the downfall of, of all totalitarian organizations, whether it be a religious cult or a Nexium or, uh, an MLM or a, a political cult. So the internet has had a Massive impact on Scientology. These days, people don't buy a tube of toothpaste without Googling what's the best toothpaste. <laughs> and you, you can't have someone hand you these days, uh, you know, one of the little promotional pieces saying, come in for a free personality test or 
come and watch this Dianetics film or whatever the shtick was that has been used in years past without that person grabbing their phone and going, what is this? Uh, the Oxford capacity analysis uh, or the free personality test? What is it? Oh, it's Scientology? Oh, shit. I ain't going anywhere near that. Um, and so that has had a huge impact on their ability to get new members. And as a result, the membership of Scientology is dwindling, dwindling, dwindling. As for the people that are inside Scientology already, those people have been indoctrinated into this idea that you can't rely on any information that doesn't come from Scientology about Scientology. And so even though they have TVs and Netflix and phones and, you know, computers sitting on their desk at home and access to Google, they believe that they shouldn't look at anything negative about Scientology because it, why, why read that? I know what Scientology is. It's what happens to me. And, you know, you see this often um, with celebrities because they get interviewed about, you know, well, what do you have to say about the, you know, Scientology and the Aftermath TV show? Oh, I didn't watch it. Well, how can you not watch it? It was all about Scientology. You know, it was a big, big show. It was an Emmy award winning show. How can you not watch it? I don't need to watch it. I know what Scientology is. I don't need those people telling me what Scientology is. So there is this sort of built-in um, filter to keep bad news out of their out of their world, and that is effective to some extent. Um, but the problem is that this this bubble that they live in is very leaky. And they now have friends and family and people that they bump into when they're getting a cup of coffee. And they can't say or do anything almost in the world without having the potential of someone unloading some shit on them about what's really going on in Scientology. And so there are now probably more people who have quietly left Scientology but don't say anything. They don't say, I left, because if they say, I left, then their family and friends will all disconnect from them, and maybe they get fired from their job if they work for a Scientologist, or maybe, you know, there's a lot of ramifications to that. So the the probably the majority of people who might be called Scientologists are unwilling to actually participate in Scientology. They just will say that in order to kind of keep the peace and not have disastrous uh, fallout from having said that they're no longer a Scientologist. Sort of answer and insights, Mike. Um, just want to talk to you a little bit about life after Scientology or Scientology and the aftermath. How do you end up um, connecting with Leah and some other people uh, that we love, like Aaron Smith-Levin uh, and, and some other real champions like Mark Headley? Um, and how do you sort of get involved and become a board member at the Aftermath Foundation and what does that sort of involve for you? Okay. Um, let's Let's take them one at a time. Uh, and I, <coughs> excuse me, I have a little tickle in my throat. That's why I'm coughing all the time. Um, I cover all of this in my book, just so you know. But I met Leah first um, when I was, you know, the head of the Office of Special Affairs, though I didn't have a lot of interaction with her. In fact, I was introduced to her by Lisa Marie Presley, who I did have a lot of interaction with. Um, after I had left, uh, the first people that I was in touch with were Mark and Claire because Mark and Claire were people that I had known very, very well when I was in the C organization. 
I had actually had to deal with them when I was the head of the Office of Special Affairs. Anyway, they're, they're, they're probably my closest friends anywhere. I consider them family because neither of us, not, neither them nor me and my wife have any family left. They all disconnected from us because we're suppressive people according to Scientology. So we have our own sort of family of choice now. And the Headleys and the Rinders and all our kids are like very close. Um, I met Aaron Smith Levin. I did not know him in the Sea Org because, uh, very funny story. Yeah. I lived near Clearwater, the spiritual headquarters of Scientology. Aaron lives in Clearwater and there is a restaurant, um, in Clearwater that sort of famous for its brunch on Sundays. And I went there for brunch and I, <laughs> I met Aaron standing at the urinal at that restaurant. <laughs> I love how Australian that is also like meeting someone at an important <laughs> person in your life at brunch. Only Australians he, enjoy that. He's like, he like looked over to me and he kind of didn't say anything. And then afterwards he said, I felt so embarrassed. I did. I like, I was afraid to say anything, blah, blah, blah. Anyway. So now, he and his wife and their children are all also part of that family. And my wife and Aaron's wife, Heather, were very close friends in the Sea Organization. Leah, on the other hand, when she got into trouble for asking where Shelley Miscavige was and sort of started down this path of being abused by Scientology pretty seriously over that, she reached out to me um, and just called me one day and said, look, I'm being told that you're a piece of shit. You're a wife beater. You're this, you're that. I want to hear your side of the story. And so I told her what my side of the story. Then she says, okay, can you give me some advice about what I should do? This is what's happening now. And, and I said, well, this is what's going to happen. Here's how this is going to go down. And she then would call me back and say, oh, my God, how do you know? How do you know? They said exactly what you said they were going to say. I said, because that's what I did for a living for 25 years. So I know exactly how you're going to be dealt with. And that sort of built a, a, a relationship that she then, um, another person who had left the C organization and another friend of mine, Amy Scobie had reached out to Leah because her mother is a long story, but is the start of the aftermath show. Amy's mother, Bonnie was dying in hospital in Seattle. And she wanted a message to get out to the world that disconnection is evil. And she didn't want anybody else to have to suffer what she had suffered when she was a Scientologist and had disconnected from Amy because Amy had left the sea organization. And that was the start of the aftermath show. And Leah called me and said, look, I've got this. And I think there are other stories we need to tell. And I said, I'm in, I'll help you, whatever you need. And that started the aftermath. And we did three seasons of that show. And it, that also you know, you talked, Lou, before us, before about information and the internet. That show had an enormous impact because it aired every week. And every week was another hour of information, like straight from the horse's mouth. And those Scientology tried to say, oh, this person's a liar. And then the week after, the next person was a liar. Everybody that appeared on that show according to Scientology, was a liar doing it for money, not that anybody got paid anything, were, were seeking fame and fortune, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I mean, it was just ridiculous. And people can, you know, people, when they watch someone talking about their experiences, have a pretty good sense of whether they believe them or not. And the people that appeared on the aftermath and the stories week after week after week just 
hammered into the consciousness of people, at least in the United States, that there is something evil among us and that, that something needs to be done about this. And that has, has sort of changed how society looks at Scientology. And, you know, one of the things that happened when I left was I didn't have really anywhere to go. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a resume. I didn't have anything. So I went to people who had left the, or escaped the Sea Org before me. Uh, Tom DeVocht, who you saw, or mm. if you watched the aftermath, he was on the aftermath, uh, was where I went. And then subsequent to that, I went with to uh, Ronnie and Biddy Miscavige, with Ronnie is David Miscavige's older brother, who had also left the Sea Org previously and had been, he and his wife had been me and my Scientology Sea Org wife's best friends when we were in the Sea Org. And I went and lived with them. And, you know, this is a very typical pattern that has happened over the years of this community of former members who help the latest ones that are coming out. And at one point, um, we were all talking about this, Mark and Claire and me and Christy and, and Aaron and another guy called Louis, Louis Garcia, who had sued Scientology. And Louis said, you know, I started a foundation. His son had leukemia and he started a foundation for leukemia victims. And he said, it wasn't really that hard to do. And I think we should do something like that for, to gather together resources to help people trying to get out of Scientology or if they've gotten out, help them get on their feet. And so that was how the Aftermath Foundation started. And we have now got thousands of people all over the world who we can call on at a, the, a moment's notice to say, hey, we just got a notification that this person is trying to get to the airport to get home and they're sitting out on the corner of this street and they need a ride to the airport or they need somewhere to stay or they need an airline ticket or whatever it is, we now have the resources to be able to help people and we have helped a lot of people. And some of those stories are, are quite incredible. I mean, just incredible. And we are actually going about doc or have gone about documenting them because I have the idea that maybe we can make a, a, a series of videos about these stories because mm. they are mind blowing. Some of these stories, some of them are just like, Hey, we got we got someone a, a ticket to get home, and we we got them enough money to to get the first and last month's rent, and we helped them find a job and put together a resume. And some of them are really dramatic, and so that has been one of the the greatest things that has come out of my sort of whistleblowing life is the creation of the Aftermath Foundation and the work that we're able to do. Fantastic, Mark. And really the work that you're doing for the um, Aftermath community, if you like, is really truly inspiring. I'm really interested to understand, I, I imagine having been so high up in the organisation and then, late, well, escaping, as you put it, um, you would have faced a lot of backlash at the time. I'm just curious to know, is that still following you today, particularly as you continue to be quite vocal against the Church of Scientology, or do you feel like that has diminished or they've thought this is too hard, we'll just leave him alone now and focus on other people? No, they don't leave me alone. Um, they've sort of changed their tactic for a while. They, you know, were sending private investigators constantly following me everywhere and setting up cameras outside my house and buying my garbage and that sort of stuff. <laughs> that has, that, that has kind of slowed down because, you know, we've, I've showed a lot of that. I caught it on video. 
I have this little YouTube channel that I uploaded some things on and on my blog. And then we use some of it in the aftermath. And it's, that's like, a not really a good thing. It, it just doesn't come across too well it, when you have uh, a forum to be able to expose that sort of stuff. So they kind of stopped. What they do now is mostly online. Like they buy um, domain names and put up smear videos and buy Google ads for anybody that searches for my name or my blog or, you know, my book. Uh, they even put out fake books to try and trick people into buying their fake books instead of my book when it was released. I mean, <laughs> that sort of stuff is is what goes on. I guess the saddest part about it is that the, the people that they use primarily uh, to do these smear videos and create these these terrible websites, the name that is used is mostly my daughter and my ex-wife. And they claim, you know, I, I assaulted and beat her up. And th- this is a pretty um, kind of famous incident that occurred, which I detail in the book and John Sweeney covered in the BBC. And it, you know, Seven Scientologists, including my daughter and ex-wife and a bunch of other leading Scientology figures, um, accosted me in a parking lot and were, and John Sweeney of the BBC recorded it because uh, I was on the phone with him at the time. And at, in the, you know, they were pushing and shoving and trying to prevent me from leaving and et cetera, et cetera. And during the, the course of that, my ex-wife got a graze on her left forearm, like a, a, you know, a skin graze. And when I asked the Sweeney actually said, do you want me to call the police? And he said, well, you're in England. And he said, well, we can still call the police. And, and my wife was actually in at a doctor's appointment and the doctor heard all the commotion and came out and said, do you want me to call the sheriffs? And I said, yes. So the sheriffs got called and, most of the 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 people scurried off, but my wife, ex-wife, and daughter, and one other person stayed until the sheriff showed up. And then, because there was a you know blood on her arm, they called the emergency medical team, and they came. And she said that you know they put a piece of bandage on it and recorded it all in these reports as. Uh, as a, a, you know, a graze or the pain level of two out of 10 and that she refused further treatment and to go to the hospital and the police, the sheriff's report said it had resulted from incidental contact. And, you know, when I was trying to leave and that they had approached me, blah, blah, blah. Well, that has morphed into, I um, sought out and physically assaulted my ex-wife and the my daughter could hear the bones breaking in her arm and she has suffered permanent neurological damage and is in pain for the rest of her life and that I am a a, a monster and that they you know there should be I shouldn't have be able to work anywhere because I'm a a, a <laughs> a wife abuser and a woman beater and et cetera, et cetera. And this just keeps going. And it doesn't matter that all of the police reports and the EMT report and the recording say completely the opposite. They just keep saying it with the hope that maybe someone who doesn't know who I am or doesn't know what Scientology is or how they operate will see it and be discouraged from believing what I say. So that's the, that's the sort of world of Scientology harassment. 
It's absolutely hectic, and kudos to you, Mike, for being able to put up with it for so long. I would have long ago left Clearwater, so kudos to you, my friend. <laughs> um, I, I did want to ask you just about, and I'm not sure whether the right way to frame this, but when you're in the CEO, um, are you thinking about your own sense of purpose or are you so in the machine that you're just thinking about serving um, LRH? And then after you leave Scientology, how do you start to think about your own purpose in life after you've left the movement? Um, okay, great questions. And when you're in the Sea Org, you believe your purpose is the purpose of the Sea Org. I mean, you sign a billion-year contract to commit yourself to achieving the aims of Scientology for eternity. And that is a big thing that motivates and drives every Sea Org member is the belief that their work is so important because they are literally saving every man, woman, and child on Earth. And that you know, there are a lot of factors that go into controlling someone in an environment like that. But having this greater purpose and therefore being able to justify everything bad that happens or a painful experience or whatever, because that's that's insignificant compared to accomplishing what we're setting out to accomplish and what we must accomplish. So that's a really, really important part of the, the glue that holds such organizations together. When you leave, and when I left, and talking to a lot of others who have left, it certainly creates a sort of hole. Like, it's hard to be um, thinking that you're saving the planet and then going to, I'm just selling cars. Like, <laughs> it, it's not like you sort of feel like I'm missing something here. Like, there's something in my life that's kind of a little, and particularly when you have spent so long participating in that sort of activity. And so, you know, I think that to some extent, the, the, you know, I say I, I went from a life of trying to save the world with Scientology to a life of trying to save the world from Scientology. Mm -hmm. And that has given me a sort of a, a, a grander purpose in life. And the Aftermath Foundation certainly is a big part of that. And Helping people uh, has sort of helping people for real <laughs> has taken the place of helping people for fake, and that is a uh, very very gratifying. But it took me a while to kind of muddle my way through to that. It, it, it there is a sense of loss of this bigger picture or this bigger game or whatever you want to call it. And um, happily, I feel like I have found that again now, and that is what I am able to do. Thanks so much, Mike. And it's um, keeping in mind, you know, the work that you and, and your community have been able to do to help people to move on is just fantastic. And I just wonder, in terms of the organisation itself, given how difficult it must be to recruit members how do you think Scientology is remaining financially viable I know they've got a lot in uh, a lot of properties and savings and what do you see as the future uh, of Scientology in terms of you know is it likely to continue in the longer term what do you think will happen with David Miscavige's leadership and potentially you know down the track if, if the um, organization continues to a point where he's no longer on this earth I'm just really curious to know what have you had a thought about what's the future looks like for Scientology. Oh, yeah, lots of thoughts. Okay. First, surprisingly or unsurprisingly, if you study cults and, you know, like you look at the these doomsday cults, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses are a great example. You know, they have been predicting the end of the world and Armageddon <laughs> 
for a century, and they have had exact dates, and these exact dates have come and gone. And that hasn't resulted in a bunch of them drifting off from the, the fold. In, in fact, it has, it has been shown that that has sort of revitalized and given them greater, they always come up with an excuse and an explanation like, well, God's just testing us. That was just a test to see how we could be. Now we're like better prepared. So, so in 1979, the real thing is going to happen. And then when 1979 comes around and the real thing doesn't happen, they go, well, see, that was God's still testing us. He wants <laughs> you to keep. And, and this um, tends to result in even greater resolve in those people in this sort of dwindling community. And that's the same thing in Scientology. The, there are less and less people but those people are giving more and more money because they believe it's getting really desperate. We have got to do big, better, grander, more incredible things in order to save mankind. And so while there is less people coming in and eventually that erosion of the the base of membership will have a, a, an irrevocable um, end to the organization because you know sooner or later the people uh, that that are there are going to die or they literally going to run out of money and they won't have anything more to give. And if there's no new ones coming in, I mean, the only real new people coming into Scientology these days are children of Scientologists. And that's not even a, a large percentage of, of kids these days. But they have $3 billion. It takes a lot of time to chew through $3 billion. Mm. So it'll last for a long time unless the IRS revokes the tax-exempt status of Scientology. And that's not because of the money. It's because of the oversight. Because right now, as the, the law is in the United States, if you're an exempt organization, you don't have to file any financial information whatsoever. And basically, the government is has to be hands-off. They can't intrude into the activities of a religious organization unless they can prove that they are actually breaking the law. Now that's a good question and, and there's this could be this discussion could be three hours long just on why haven't the government agencies that should be doing their job, why aren't they doing their job with respect to Scientology? But once that tax exemption is gone, and there is uh, then disclosure of, of how much money have they been taking in and what have they been spending it on, which is not the things that they say that they spend their money on. They do not do these massive campaigns to bring, you know, educate children in darkest Africa or save the victims of, of uh, hurricanes in Indonesia or whatever it is that they claim. They just do photo ops. They spend enough money to be able to do a photo op so that they can tell their people, look at what we did. Here's our guys out there helping. Give us more money. We can do more. And that would have a, a huge impact on Scientologists if they discovered that the million dollars that they handed over of their hard-earned cash to save, um, you know, whatever the latest pitches that they that they were given uh children in the philippines from you know i don't know sex predators or something whatever it is and that they discovered that well actually what got spent was the airfare for a camera crew and uh you know some t-shirts to hand out to people so that we could pretend that they were actually scientologists that would have a big impact on mm. Scientology. And the, the idea, and, and 
exposing where the money is spent would probably also um, highlight some activities that may be prosecutable with respect to um, abusing people. So that is the ultimate end of Scientology as we know it. The ideas will never go away. You can't kill ideas. Those books will exist in libraries. Hubbard's ramblings will still be available, and there will be a certain number of people that will get them and think, oh, oh, this is great, you know. And I think, Mike, and, if worst comes to worst, we can always dig up those uh, steel titanium tablets uh, in our disclosed <laughs> locations. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yes. They're very, very important. Um, <clears throat> as for what happens when Miscavige, you know, shuffles off his mortal coil, I Leaves his that, body. Yeah, drops his body. <laughs> That's what the Scientology term is, drops his body. Um, I think that um, I, I had a realization the other day. I was doing another podcast with, funnily enough, the Mark Twain Historical Society, and um, someone asked me that question. It was Tony Ortega, actually. He was doing the interview for the Mark <laughs> Twain Society. He asked me the question. He said, who do you think will take over, like, People always asking this, who will take over? And I've always answered, well, you know, in, in the, the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. There will be some, you know, jellyfish uh, entity that has been beaten and squashed <laughs> into insignificance who is less jellyfish-like than the rest of them. And that will be the person who will stand up and say, okay, I'm the guy now. But then I realized, actually, the person who would most likely take over from him is Shelley. Because mm -hmm. if he is wow. gone, she would not be have to be disappeared anymore. And Shelley is the person who most of the leadership of Scientology would go, yep, we'll follow her. That was the reason that she was disappeared in the first place. Mm. because. She was a threat to David's leadership. So that's who I think if she's, if she's still alive when he croaks, then she would be the, the logical person to take over. Thanks so much, Mike. I really was not expecting that answer. Huge bomb to drop there. Huge bomb. <laughs> um, and, and on that same note, um, just speaking of people who have sort of disappeared, uh, there's two key, I don't know if I can say former Scientologist, but two key figures in this space that I'm dying to know what's happened to them. The first is Tommy Davis, who seems to have disappeared off the face of the earth. And the second is Marty Rathbun, who I was really excited to see that he was out of the movement and he was sort of helping with the Louis Thoreau documentary. Then it looks like he's at times back in the movement or colluding on or getting some financial kickback. So can you tell us a bit about what your knowledge or thoughts are about these two figures and what's happened to them and what the future looks like for those two. Well, Tommy Davis is still kissing David Miscavige's ass, but he is no longer in the Sea Organization. <laughs> right. Was he, he kicked out? No, he left um, okay. with his wife, Jessica Feshback, Jessica, Jessica Rodriguez, Jessica, whatever her name was, Martinez, something or other. Anyway, <laughs> and they had um, two kids, and then he divorced her, and then he went off. Uh, I mean, he was working for Kerry Packer, who he met through Tom Cruise when Kerry Packer was involved in, uh, James Packer, I mean, when he was involved in Scientology briefly, and he was running Rat Pack in the United States, and he's like a, he's like a, a sort of a, a sleazeball hanger on her who has both his mother as a very well-known actress and his dad, who is a very, very wealthy and influential person in the Republican Party in the United States. And so he ended up working for this guy called Tom Barack, who's being prosecuted in the crimes about... Um, <laughs> being an agent of influence for Middle Eastern countries in the United States without reporting it. And he was the head of the, the Donald Trump inaugural committee. And Tommy Davis was involved in that somehow. Anyway, 
Tommy Davis then married some Moroccan woman or something, or maybe just married her in Morocco, some actress or model. And I think he just lives in California somewhere and sort of flits around being a, uh, you know, you know, a sort of a Paris Hilton type famous for being famous, you know, I don't know. <laughs> he doesn't seem to do much. Um, and Marty Rathbun, I talk a lot about, well, not a lot, but I cover my thought about what happened with Marty in my book. I believe that Scientology got to him. I think that it's pretty clear in the Louis Theroux movie that what drove him over the edge and me knowing Marty and his wife as well as I did, um, and the, the, the concern that they had over their son. Um, I believe that they managed to, to find whatever, find the button that they could push on Marty Rathbun that they could control him. And I believe that he took a payout. I don't even hold that against him. I, I think anybody that wants to take money from Scientology, <laughs> good for you. Uh, if you want to just go off and live your life, good for you. Unfortunately, Marty went sort of one step beyond that, which I think is very reprehensible, which is he started bad-mouthing the people that he had formerly been working with and you know, including me and Leah and the Headleys and sort of anybody. Now he's become kind of Scientology's, I don't know, it's very strange because they, after saying all these horrendous things about what an asshole he is and how unreliable, unpredictable and a liar and a, just a, the most awful scum of the earth, now they have videos of him saying, you know, well, Mike Rinder's a liar and Leah Remini's just in it for the money and blah, blah, blah. And yet, and, and they sort of promote these things as no less an authority than Marty Rathbun says that Mike Rinder is a liar. Well, <laughs> no less an authority than Marty Rathbun, like, you know, two years ago, Marty Rathbun, you said he was like the asshole of the earth. And, you know, what happened? So, it's sad. Um, I wish him and Mosey and their son well. I don't bear any ill will towards them. Um, I, but I, I, I feel sorry that he felt that the only way out of whatever the predicament that he felt he was in was to turn on those people who had been his friends. Mike, uh, we've just run over time. I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Um, so what I'll do is I'll leave a link to the Aftermath Foundation in the show notes and also a link to your book so all Australians and our international audience can uh, find a copy and delve a bit deeper into all the amazing topics you've unearthed for us today. So I want to thank you for being here with us. Can you hang around for a minute uh, so we can have a little debrief? Sure. Fantastic. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.